We're podcasting from the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA. I'm Public Affairs Director Taylor Henry. And with me today is Father Frank O'Grady. Father O'Grady is a chaplain at the Walter Reed National Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. Welcome, Father. Thank you. And thank you for joining me today. You, sir, are on record as being the oldest serving chaplain in the military, correct? Yes. And you were recalled. You had a whole career in the Army as a chaplain, retired, and then brought back. Tell yes. us that. Tell us that story. What happened? Retired in October 2013, came back, uh, recalled, 1st of February 2014. Um, and now in my 4th year, so I plan to make this my last year on active duty. I plan to retire finally, or my fifth retirement, the end of January. And I would say that you deserve it after how many recalls? Well, this is the fourth year. Right, the fourth year of your recall. Yes. Which is almost unheard of. Well, priests do get recalled um, you know, based on based on personal needs, um, but um, yeah, four years I guess is probably the maximum. And you were a chaplain at uh, at the the Walter Reed National Medical Center before your recall, correct? Yes. And so you had served out there for how long before you retired? I was there three years. And uh, what was it about your service there that prompted them to say, let's recall Father O'Grady? Well, I was in charge of um, the Wonder Warrior Brigade. At that time, in 2013, there were like 600 Wonder Warriors. The numbers are less now, thank God. And um, there was a vacancy at the hospital, and they asked me would I be able, would I be willing to fill it. Um, this, the two command structures in Bethesda, the Wonder Warrior Brigade is on the Fort Belvoir and the hospital is under the kind of joint Army-Navy operation. So the two separate commands. So um, I recall I came back uh, as a hospital Catholic chaplain and that was the 1st of February 2014. And your time before your recall, I suppose, was one of the periods of heaviest casualties in the Iraq and Afghanistan war. Yeah. And uh, you saw quite a few of those casualties at the hospital. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about that. Uh, When you look into the eyes of a man who's lost one or more limbs, uh, has his life in front of them, that he'll have to deal with his handicap, uh, how do you relate to uh, a, a, a serviceman who's in that situation? Well, they, they come in from Germany and they come into Andrews Air Force Base and they're brought over by ambulance, normally overnight to the hospital. And they're very tired. Um, many of them do not re- really want to talk to anybody. They're so tired. Um, but we try to show them that we care. That there's always a group of people willing to meet them. Red Cross officials meet them. Um, a local commander would meet them and the chaplain would meet them. And this would be like two or three, it could be like two o'clock or three o'clock in the morning. And then they would be admitted to the hospital. And we try to give them a sense of hope. 
sense that you know they're they kind of in good hands, and uh, they just need to take it take it day by day, and you know just um, if there's any way we can help them out, support them. Obviously, we're willing to do it. Of course, we we minister to people of all faiths, not just Catholic, and um, so um, we try to, as I say, try to give them a. Uh, a sense that they belong to a new community. We try to make it a home away from home, not just for the soldier, but also the family members. Sometimes family members will come on the medevac flight with them, and they carry as much stress as the soldier carries. And, you know, when they're admitted, if they're admitted like to the ICU wards, which I cover, have covered for four years, um, it can be traumatic. You can't give you enough power and, and control. And, uh, you know, intensive care around the clock. Um, very little sleep because uh, there's so many checks done day and night, blood pressure, medication, um, breathing problems, and all of that, things are checked. So soldiers necessarily need to be woken up so that checks can be done. And everything is put in the system, which is what intensive care is. So we visit them pretty well every day and talk to their families. And um, try to remind them that healing is not just a straight curve up upwards. Sometimes there are setbacks. So soldier-like might be in, in the hospital. He might be, he or she might be in the hospital like a week or two weeks. And they may get infections um, from inactivity. They're in intensive care. Some of them can't move very well, you know. And um, they, sometimes they can't speak. So we try to communicate non-verbally with them. You know, some, some of them, them, they will write. They will write on a sheet, and we will respond. And just try to establish, a, basically, a system of trust from day one. By the time they reach Bethesda, a good many of them have probably already been in the hospital in Germany, I suppose. Landstuhl. So uh, they've been recuperating for some weeks, I suppose, or days. Uh, or, yeah, depends. And... Um, Spirituality, where does that fit in by the time they get to Bethesda? Are they, is that on their minds? Uh, do they seek you well, out? Well, they all like prayer. Everybody likes prayer. And the prayer is a prayer of hope that they're going to recover. And uh, that, that the recovery may take a long, long time. If they have brain injuries, like, for example, they will go to a, normally go to a rehab center after, certain, after a certain period of time. And, uh, you know, so they all love prayer. And we believe that where there's life, there's hope. Now, of course, we know that some of them, unfortunately, don't make it. Some of them uh, pass on to eternity while they're with Walter Reed. And we try to prepare the families for that as well. You know, and we try to provide pastoral care for the families by, you know, preparing them. What if... Um, he or she, the docs will have, will have given them a kind of a heads-up sign that perhaps um, they might make it. And then we will try to prepare them, like, what if, you know, if they don't make it, what can we do to help you? And uh, frequently put them in, church, in touch with their own pastors in the, the civilian sector. Many of them will already have been in touch with the, their, their pastors, but some of them won't. And we say to them, like, you know, and have the, past, have the pastors uh, take their name and pray for them at their chapel services on Sunday. And, uh, you know, Catholic and Baptist churches are very good at that, you know. The types of injuries you see, I suppose, range from the most serious to 
maybe not so serious. You mentioned brain injuries, uh, paraplegia, quadriplegia. Oh, yes. Uh, missing limbs. Missing limbs. Um, uh, TBI, traumatic brain injury, is a big one. Just general shock, general bodily injuries from IEDs. Are there any patterns you've noticed in terms of how uh, the, the the patients are able to deal with uh, what 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 are some of the most difficult conditions for them to deal with that you found? I think brain injuries are, are among the most difficult because they take the longest to heal, and you know injuries to the brain, headaches are more severe than in the head than any, maybe any other part of the body, you know. Another one is if they lose a limb, loss of leg, you know, trying to get get used to the fact that they have to walk, and then but then they're, they, they go through prosthetics as they recover, you know, and they're fitted with new limbs, and it's a, Walter Reed does an awful lot in terms of repairing limbs. They can even repair hands now, you know, as well. And it's like they activate a nerve here, and it's like lifting a fork, that eating food with a, um, a temporary hand. Uh, you know, they're getting a lot better at, at this stuff now than perhaps they used to be. Come a long way in the last, probably the last 20 years, you know. So you've actually seen the breakthroughs in application. Well, they're, they're, they're improving things. They really are improving things all the time, you know. Okay. And, you know, the other thing too is, I, I think, a, a loss of um, depression is, is, is a big thing. The, f- the fear that they may not get better. And many of these kids would never have been in hospital before. This would be their first experience. Um, they may have been to hospital in Lanchdale to uh, stabilize them. But then the real treatment would start when they come over to, when they come to Walter Reed. And the families, um, if they're, if their families live in Germany, they would accompany them on the flight over. And if they're not living in Germany, they will come here like the first day or two after they, after they get here. And the families carry a great deal of stress as well. The families, we try to assure the families because, uh, you know, hanging around the ICU wards is not the most pleasant thing for families. And they, they get tired. Some of them don't want to leave the patient's room even at night to sleep even if they have a, a, a room in the Fisher House, they still don't want to go there. Some of them will stay all night and sleep in chairs. And I'm sure the uh, hospital has plenty of psychiatrists and psychologists to help them deal with the depression. Yeah. But some of that mm-hmm. is linked to spirituality or lack thereof too, I suppose. Spirituality, yeah. It's a, it's a holistic approach, you know. Uh, physical, me- physical, mental, spiritual, and every other way combined. And I think they run, they kind of, they run into one another, you know. And um, we hear a lot about post-traumatic stress, which has been around a long time, been recognized for a long time. But a, a newer condition that's come along here in recent years is moral injury. Uh, and the uh, a, a, a state of mind, I suppose, state of the soul, where there's been uh, the memory of having done things that God wouldn't want us to do. We get um, a little bit of that, but of course, in in recent years, the um, the role in Afghanistan and Iraq are non non combatant roles. They're more advisors, 
Um, we've also had special forces like from who are working in Syria come in, but you know they they're um the you know the basis following orders in the military is very big. Soldiers are very loyal in following orders. Sure. And I've not detected much, um, very few cases of regret. They did what they had to do. Yeah. And they followed orders, you know. And frequently you you get a few like Catholic soldiers coming to confession, you know, not not revealing nothing about confession, but these things will come up and they need just need to talk about them and kind of normalize the whole situation. You're a soldier, this is what you're, you do, this is what your this is what your country expects you to do, you know. And they just deal with it, you know. And acts of war are justified under uh, Saint Augustine's just war theory. Oh yeah. And so oh, yeah. uh, th they're doing their jobs as soldiers is not itself immoral. That's right. And sometimes they have to be reminded of that. Well, the whole thing in Afghanistan started after 9-11. So it's like a self-defensive war because there's, Afghanistan is where all the, the Taliban carried out their planning in the caves and all of that. And everybody agreed at the time that had widespread support going over there. And hopefully there'll be a good result at the end. Hopefully now... It's gone on longer than people anticipated. Um, but, you know, they're doing great work. The work is hard over there, and any of them that come back will tell you that. We don't normally bring up much about their combat situation to them initially. We, we try to give them time, give them space. If they want to talk about it, we're there. But sometimes bringing it up when they're injured is, may not be the best approach. So we, we try to, as they like, come across... Um, as folks, we are here for you. We're here for you, and we offer spirituality. We offer prayer, um, and we tell, we work with the families. If God should call your son or daughter out of this life, you know we're willing to support you. But where there's life, there's hope. And sometimes, you know, they will be given a timeline by the medi by medics. Some of them insist on getting a timeline. I don't agree with timelines. I've seen so many timelines not kept. I remember uh, one, one day in, in the pharmacy in, in the hospital, um, there, there, there was a, it was about a year ago now, there was a, a CNN had on something about Syria and the combat in Syria. And there was this uh, retiree from Vietnam sitting there in the pharmacy. And I remember watching him, he had prosthetics. So you could see his, under his pants was prosthetics. And he started throwing up when the report from CNN was going on. So he had flashbacks to the Vietnam War. So dealing with flashbacks and memories is is another issue that they have to deal with. So to do is support groups are very prominent and, and very supportive, you know. And how does this work affect you? I mean, day in and day out, you're dealing with so much sickness and well, catastrophic injury. All of our jobs at Walter Reed is visiting patients and also supporting staff. Um, we run resiliency programs for the staff, short resiliency programs because they simply can't break away from their desks for long periods. You won't get them in the morning because they, the, the doctors go around in the afternoon, evening, they're on their way out of here. So we try to you know, provide resiliency programs at 2 o'clock, give them a short talk, 10-minute talk, give them books, and give them sandwiches. Just as a token of, of our support, we do them every month. For the, for the staff in the ICU wards, because they go through a lot. 
they deal, they, they, every day um, one of these soldiers has a different nurse. And the nurse really does not know the soldier until they actually started caring for him or her. And so all of our jobs, all of our jobs is, is trying to uh, give a religious dimension. We do a lot of praying with families. So if the family is in the room, the docs come in where we bring the family out of the room into the break room and talk to them. Sometimes there's so many people in the room to get in the ways of the docs, you know, and get chairs in there and sit them down and just talk to them about how, how are you, how, you know, what are you afraid of right now? What are your fears? Um, and have you seen any improvement like the last day or two since he, he or she came over, you know? Is there anything you want to ask us? And sometimes we end up being almost communication, communications between the family and the doctors. Doctors have their own schedule, so they do their runs and they're gone. We, got, we will seek out the doctor and ask a question. We do that work too, but we, you know, a lot of it is that faith and hope in God is powerful. Do you ever find yourself battling depression yourself? Well, I always say to the folks that I work with in the hospital, every hour and a half visiting patients, go and chill out, take a break, go and get a cup of coffee. Um, we're always told if you don't feel good, don't visit patients because you're not going to be any good to patients. Um, but, uh, you know, you just work out your, you work out your schedule from day to day. Um, some days, you know, that there's very good patients in the ICU, they're doing very well. It might be necessary to see them every day, but the wounded soldiers we would try to see, we would try to see every day. And when you, when you do feel a bit down, especially when, when, when somebody dies, you know, you, you go back in the ward and, and when you start trying to reach out to people, that's, that's self-healing. The worst way to deal with that, deal with this, just sit in your office doing nothing and thinking about it. It's <laughs> so like you go in the ward and you visit and you talk to people and everything is, everything's, I'll go and talk to the staff. Everything takes shape. Do you find your work spiritually fulfilling? Yeah, yeah. There's there's times uh, you know spirituality is one of those things. Obviously, you know um, we don't always see results, but that's part of faith. What faith is is about. Um, but when soldiers uh, when they come around and they'll thank you, will thank you for your prayer yesterday before you before I went to the OR. I feel so much better today. And you know they see they're establishing a connection between the work of the various departments and, he, and their healing. Okay, I just got another question or two. Um, uh, we've heard that, uh, well, we hear stories all the time about how the military is being secularized and like society at <clears throat> large, there's increased secularization everywhere you look. Uh, what's your experience? Has there been, is there a move afoot in, in the U.S. military to stamp out the free exercise of Christianity or Catholicism? I've never noticed that. 24 years in the army, I've never noticed it. I've had, uh, you know, I think I only had one Catholic commander in my 24 years. And um, I found them extremely supportive. Um, of course, we, you know, we minister, as I said, to, to people of all faiths, not just Catholics. So, I always check religious backgrounds before I visit patients. You got patients like this saints and agnostic and Baptist, Lutherans, Episcopalians. And young soldiers don't really care who comes to see them. 
as long as we don't try to indoctrinate them into a religious sect, in other words, make them Catholic, um, we take them as they are and we provide general ministry, you know, not just if they're Catholic, we bring up obviously their, their sacramental background and confessions. We anoint, normally anoint Catholics if they wanted. We don't anoint others if, unless they ask for it. If they ask for it, then we, we, but I tell them up front, um, I look at the list and I say, oh, I see your Baptist faith background. Well, I'm not of your faith. I'm Catholic myself. And to say, it's fine. It's a matter to us. We'll take what you have to offer. You know? So, I find that very fulfilling. When people are ill, there are no agnostics. God is always there. And it doesn't really matter whether you're a person is Catholic or Baptist or Lutheran. I found very few cases. Sometimes, one or two cases, they might say, um, uh, you know, I think they want us to accept them. I remember one time, uh, talking about same-sex marriage, for example, the current thing, there was a, a woman in the room, a patient, and she was Baptist. And I went into the visitor, and there was another woman there, and I assumed that she was a cousin or sister or friend or somebody, and I just said in the ward, you're chapping the ward, oh, Grady, I just want to come and see how things are going, and what is there anything we can do for you, and how are you doing today? And, and um, you are, you are, oh yes, I see your name on the list, and this is your friend, oh no, she's my spouse. <laughs> and, you know, they want to make, they want us to see that we accept them. They don't want, you know, the, the fact that as a Catholic, we may not agree with this way of, with this indication of marriage. Um, you have to put that aside. Um, and they, you know, they will look that you accept them and you treat them like everybody else, you know. And they get the same treatment as everybody else. They get prayer and, you know. I hear you. Father Franco Grady, chaplain at uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. And uh, so impressed was Catholic Extension with your record and your work there that uh, you were nominated for the Lumen Christi Award and then named a finalist, one of eight finalists chosen out of dozens of nominees. Uh, and congratulations on that high honor, Father. And, thank you. And thank you so much for talking to me today.